Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Slight hangover from primary election night. It is a mixed bag, but I think it's safe to say that uh, this was a good night for candidates who were endorsed by Donald Trump. Not everybody won. I mean, Madison Cawthorn didn't win. Crazy Lieutenant Governor in Idaho didn't win. But uh, you had a surge of election deniers and conspiracists, uh, including in the governor's race in, in Pennsylvania. Uh, Blue Dog Democrats appear to be headed for extinction. And the Senate race in Pennsylvania is still too close to call on the Republican side. Uh, John Fetterman absolutely uh, cruised uh, to victory on the Democratic side. So with all the things that are going on, we are fortunate to be joined by one of my favorite columnists and reporters, Philip Bump from the Washington Post. Uh, Philip is the national correspondent for the Post and also writes the Post newsletter, How to Read This Chart. Uh, Philip, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Well, okay. As, as I said to you before we started this, the only the only question is, where do we start? Um, I am dying to talk to you about your hour-long conversation with Dinesh D'Souza uh, about his mockumentary or whatever you want to call it. But let, let's start by what happened in Pennsylvania last night, where you have a full on conspiracy theorist, election denying quasi insurrectionist named Doug Mastriano, who not only won the Republican primary for governor, but, but, but won in a landslide, despite the fact that the Republican leadership was in full blown panic because they think the guy is actually too crazy to be elected. So just talk to me about the significance of somebody like Doug Mastriano being poised to be the governor of, of Pennsylvania. At least he's the Republican nominee for right. governor in one of the most important swing states in the country. Yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating. There, there are a lot of factors at play here. I, I think, you know, from just a, the straight electoral factor uh, consideration, you know, this is expected to be a strong Republican year. And the question is, is Mastriano so potentially toxic to purple state voters in Pennsylvania that it even spurs it to be a less overall Republican uh, uh, victory in November simply because Mastriano is the top of the ticket? I mean, there, there are, you know, that's the sort of question that I think probably a lot of folks in the party are asking at this point. Uh, and I, I don't know if we know the answer to that. But really, fundamentally, what his victory tells us is something disconcerting, alarming about the extent to which Republican voters are okay with the sort of conspiracy theorizing that Mastriano embraced, you know, that, that, that it is not simply the case that they excuse Donald Trump's having, you know, made up lie after lie about the 2020 election. It is not simply the case that they're fine with the fact that Donald Trump tried to, you know, seize a second term in office, uh, despite having lost. It is that people who worked with him to try and get that done, who were very explicit in trying to overturn the results of that election, pay no political cost from Republican voters as well. And that, of course, sends a, a very different and disconcerting message. Well, you actually wrote yesterday that not only did they not pay a price for it, it, it turns out that support for the January 6th uh, insurrection is not a barrier in the Republican primary. It might even be a benefit. So, I mean, you know, Mastriano and Kathy Barnett, who fell short, they were actually at the Capitol and Mastriano came close to the building. And as you know, and, and far from being disqualifying, there were a lot of voters in the primary who went, yeah, yeah, right. I mean, this is part of this 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 revisionist history that I'm not sure that everybody's caught up with yet. On January 6th, people are, you know, right. you know, focused on, well, the evidence, did they actually try to overturn the election? What was going on? 
While in MAGA world, they are basically saying, yeah, you know, damn right we did it. And we're glad we did it. It is a good thing. It was a patriotic uprising. Right. So, you know, you just can't handle the truth. Yeah, you're right. I mean, January 6th itself has followed a very Trumpian pattern, which is there is an initial like response from everybody, including his allies, about what happened. And then over time, in part because of Donald Trump forcefully insisting that what he did was the perfect thing that could have been done, people sort of start coming back along with him. And so we saw that in the wake of January 6th. We saw Republicans, even by the middle of last year, start to be like, hey, you know what? This was not as big a deal as you're making out to be. Democrats are hammering on this for political purposes, yada, yada, yada. And it really became rationalized. And Mastriano, to your point, yes, he got very close to the Capitol. He was he, he has talked about having been present when you know violence started to erupt. Uh, but he also tried to promote an alternate slate of electors in Pennsylvania, which I I think from the standpoint of his being the governor of the state is a lot more concerning because it shows that he's you know willing to sort of use the tools of power uh, in state government to advantage someone who lost an election. I, I think that's its own problem. But really what we're seeing here is that that this gets looped into the sense of fighting against the elites. And that's that's the core energy behind Trumpism, as it always has been. And so now it's not just the January 6th was an attempt to steal an election. It's that January 6th and those who defended uh, Donald Trump in the wake of and on January 6th were simply pushing back against the elites and the media and the Democrats. And that's the sort of fighter we want to see and send to Washington. And, and, you know, and I think it's worth noting, too. I mean, at this point, as we talk, the Senate race, uh, the Mm -hmm. Republican primary Senate side is not uh, determined. But if you add up the vote between uh, Oz and Barnett, the two Trumpy candidates, they're at about 55 percent. And, you know, the, the, so this 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 basically reflects the fact that a majority of people wanted to see a Trumpy candidate on the Senate side as well. And it may just be the case that they split the vote. Yeah, I, I think, by the way, I think that's a that's a crucial metric for people who want to, uh, you know, parse the results. You know, is this is this a repudiation for of Donald Trump or is it a loss right. for Trump? No, he he wins even by losing, you know, by by those by those numbers. And it's also worth noting that, you know, Mastriano is not just your usual Republican denialist. I mean, there are they become now a dime or dozen. This is a guy who's actually been subpoenaed by the January right. 6th committee. Uh, because of his role in presenting the alternate bogus state of electors into Pennsylvania, uh, he's also running in a state where the governor appoints the secretary of state. I mean, here's a guy who has really not made any secret of the fact that if he's in office in 2024, he's fully prepared to use his power and the power of a Republican legislature to overturn the results of the election. I mean, there's no there's no subtlety about it, is there? There's not. I mean, you know, and we are sort of left in the, again, familiar position of being like, well, maybe he won't be that bad. Right? <laughs> you know, this is this has sort of been the the, the last stop uh, on, the, on the denial train for, you know, since 2015 is, well, maybe it'll all work out anyway. Right. You know, and we even hear that about January 6th. Well, you know, they didn't actually steal the elections, which is, you know, obviously cool comfort. But, um, you know, and that that certainly is possible. It's also possible he doesn't win, you know, going back to the, the initial right. part of this conversation. Uh, but. Yeah. I mean, if you are trying to describe a scenario that is about as bad as it can get for preserving the sanctity of election results in a state, having Doug Mastriano be the governor of your state, I think, is is pretty close to the, to the worst case. Yeah. I mean, I, I actually do at least, you know, temporarily accept the conventional wisdom that uh, uh, that he's, he's going to have some real electability problems. On the other hand, uh, as other people have mentioned this morning, be careful what you wish for. There were a lot of Democrats that felt the same way about Donald Trump back in 2016. And the environment right now is truly horrible for Democrats. 
So, you know, I mean, this is a test of, you know, can can you be so awful, so crazy that you can't win in a wave election or are waves and are waves irresistible? You know, will there be this this, you know, the, the gravitational pull of party loyalty, which we've seen before again and again and again. And it will be interesting to see how the Republican universe out there, whether they they, they get on board with Mastriano whether or not uh, any of them say, okay, well, he's a bridge too far. I'm skeptical that there will be a, you know, big jailbreak from him, even though, you know, as of last week, most Republicans were saying, this is insane. Our heads are going to explode. Right. Well, the Republican Governors Association put out a press release last night after he won, you know, supporting his candidacy, which is, you know, the the sort of standard GOP establishment lining up behind him. Uh, You know, again, that too is also a reflection of sort of the, the, the standard past practice we've seen, which is that, you know, partisanship is is the the primary driver here. Uh, you know, that's what parties are for, right? The reason we have parties is to line up behind, you know, members of the party. Uh, but that certainly doesn't suggest that the establishment shouldn't be terribly shy about necessarily supporting Mastriano's. Yeah, I, well, as, as you and I are, are speaking here, we don't know what the outcome of the Senate election, uh, the Senate primary will be. It looks like it's headed for a recount. A little bit of a surprise that Dave McCormick did uh, as, as well as he did, um, you know, even though obviously, as if you add up the, you know, the serious MAGA uh, vote, it, it is more than fifty-five right. percent. Now, of course, he tried to remake himself uh, into uh, in, in, into a, a Trumpist. So, give me your take on on how that played out. It, it certainly looks like Kathy Barnett, who was like kind of the craziest uh, in the field, might have drawn off some votes from the Trump endorsed candidate, Doctor Oz. Is is that is that the way you're looking at it? Yeah, it, it seems that way. This, this this primary is really fascinating, and I don't think a lot of people picked up on this, but it's fascinating because it's as though you took the 2016 Trump and split him into three candidates. Yeah. You got the business yeah. guy Dave McCormick. Right. You've got the celebrity guy Mehmet Oz, and you've mm-hmm. got the, the you know the just the echoing conservative media play to the base Kathy Barnett. And so it was it's sort of interesting that they, they ended up well splitting the vote fairly evenly, yeah, just because well you know this is this is they're all sort of Trumpy in their own way. But yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, I think if you take Oz or Barnett out of the race, I think that McCormick loses to whoever, you know, remains in. I I think that's probably safe to say. And I'm curious what happens if Trump endorses Barnett instead of Oz. You know, does she then very easily win? Uh, But, you know, Mm. we we, we don't know. You know, it's easy to armchair quarterback. So going back to what you wrote the other day, maybe it was just yesterday, because I think this is an important theme to just uh, to, to stick with for a moment. You wrote in deeply Republican areas, in other words, extremism, far from being an encumbrance, can help candidates gain a political foothold, which leads me to the the next thing I wanted to talk with you about, which which is the whole controversy about the great replacement theory. And, and and you also pointed out the other day, you know, Elise Stefanik, who was under a lot of fire for actually pushing the racist theory, is not backing off. She's not apologizing. She's going back to the playbook of deny, 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 push back, uh, you know, blame the media. Is this at play with this issue as well? Because on the outside, people are going, well, this is really an embarrassment. This is really, you know, one of those maybe, you know, wake up calls, uh, you know, red flags and Republicans are going to back away from it. Actually, isn't this the same principle that you're describing, that extremism actually works in Republican primaries and Elise Stefanik actually understands that? Yeah, I think that's right. You know, I mean, I think that, I mean, look at Kevin McCarthy post January 6th, right? He is 
<laughs> what was a week <laughs> that he was sort mm. of the, you know, we, we got to do something yeah. about this guy, right? Because he very briefly thought maybe this is something which allows us to break out of the cycle of simply being the super extreme party. And then a week later, he realized that it was not going to be a thing. Even even that assault on the Capitol was not going to be the thing. At least Stefanik, as far as I can tell, she didn't even blink. Right. I mean, she was very explicit. This this great replacement theory is super useful to Republicans because it allows them to combine a bunch of things as nefarious immigrants, Democrats. It loops these two things together as sort of working in concert to try and attack normal Americans, which, of course, is generally a proxy for meaning white Americans. So it's it is toxic and has obvious negative repercussions to communities uh, who are then seen as being, you know, bad actors and nefarious actors. Uh, but it is useful in Republican politics. And Lisa Stefanik not only elevated this uh, last fall as she was trying to raise money, but in the wake of what happened in Buffalo, doubled down on it. And, you know, I, you know, again, this is the Donald Trump playbook, which I don't, you know, he didn't originate it, but his playbook was always just simply fight back on everything. And so this is, you know, oh, this is just the media trying to shut me up. And and so we just move forward with this this very toxic theory. Well, and and I'm sure you've noticed that that rather than dial back, I mean, she's not alone in all of this, uh, that, you know, she doubled down. But uh, I'm, I'm seeing the same pattern uh, throughout right wing media, including some of the right. quote unquote respectable anti anti Trump media, finding ways to rationalize and or, or, or turn it around and say they're trying to silence us. We are the victims here. Right. And you even have people who are saying, well, actually, you know, weren't Democrats pushing the same replacement theory when they were talking about demographic change, which uh, is one of those logic pretzels that makes my head hurt. But it, it seems as if. I, it, at least right now, it looks like not only are they not backing off the Great Replacement Theory, but we're going to be hearing more about it, that they're going to they're going to ride this thing to the end. Yeah, exactly. That they are trying to make it seem as though the media is casting them as racist when really all they're saying is what Democrats have been saying all along. And we saw Tucker Carlson do this right. last night. In fact, you know, Tucker Carlson gets on the air and he's like, well, I don't even know what this Great Replacement Theory is, which is his sort of aw shucks, you know, yeah. nonsense that he pulls as a report. Bullshit, but then man. he very quickly was like, but well, we do see Democrats talking about how immigration, you know, is advantageous to them politically. And so I actually just have a piece that's about to go up. But the analogy I use is let's say that you're a farmer and you're worried because you're not getting enough rain. And all of a sudden there's a rain, rain in the forecast. You're, you know, great. This is this is what you need. You open up your cistern so you can capture some rainwater and reuse it later. Uh, and then your neighbor comes up and says, you made it rain because you want this to happen. And you're right. just like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, no, I like I understand how this could, you know, might potentially be beneficial to me, but it's not my fault that it's raining. It's just bizarre to me that the party which spent so long being hyper patriotic about how great America is and the exceptionalism of America and how, you know, how we should be this magnet economically to the rest of the world now tries to pretend the owners and immigrants come to the United States is because they want to come here and vote in our elections. It's, just, it's baffling. It's obviously dishonest. It completely misunderstands how long it takes to actually become a citizen as well. Uh, but, you know, it is politically useful and therefore it is used. So a couple of days ago, you wrote only one part of the Buffalo massacre deviated from right wing rhetoric. And of course, we always have to be careful about, you know, drawing too direct a line between rhetoric and an actual action. Right. The, the, the responsibility, the blood on the hands is the is the shooter in Buffalo. But it is striking the through line from a lot of this great replacement theory rhetoric to uh, the manifesto of the shooter and a reminder that that ideas have consequences, which, as you may know, used to be that was one of the touchstones of, you know, conservative politics. Ideas have right. consequences, except this one. So what was the one part of the massacre that deviated from the right wing rhetoric? 
Yeah, right. I mean, that was basically when the trigger was pulled, right? I mean, you have this situation where, and, you know, again, you're right. These are very, very complex things. And this is obviously someone, you know, a lot of people adhere to, to this great replacement theory, even in very stark and racist terms, who are not then murderers, right? There, there's something that set this young man allegedly apart. Uh, and, you know, we, we need to acknowledge that that is absolutely the case. Uh, but it is also the case that the things which brought him there in that moment all overlap with things that are being defended, right? The fact that he had access to this rifle, that the, the New York law, which is very tough on access to guns, nonetheless allowed him to purchase it. The fact that, you know, at, that, that the Republicans defend extended magazines, like the one that he illegally modified his rifle to be able to hold. The fact that, you know, he, uh, uh, you know, espouses this idea that, that whites are under threat and that he needs to rise to their defense. Uh, and now we're seeing even after this, you know, as we just discussed that that that's being defended, all of these things, you know, I, I absolutely acknowledge that there is no short term solution to reducing the availability yeah. of guns in the United States that is that is both politically feasible and or, you know, solves the problem completely. But the fact that all of the things that he did that brought him there are still being defended, with the exception of the moment he pulled the trigger, I think should should cause people to, to do some consideration. So I want to talk to you a little bit more about um, about this, uh, but also, as, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, uh, you had a uh, an hour long conversation with Dinesh D'Souza about his uh, his new movie, 2000 Mules, which is right. which is the big lies, uh, big screen debut. Uh, and I want to talk to you about that after this. So if you wake up every morning thinking, I wish this bag under my eye would just go away, you're obviously not alone because bags and puffiness under the eyes are a problem for millions of American men and women until now. Introducing the new GenuCell Serum with plant stem cell technology from Shamanix. Susan from New Jersey wrote, I've been using GenuCell for a couple of months and the puffiness around my eyes is gone. Even the crow's feet and the small lines have disappeared and haven't come back. I love your product. I use it under my eyes, around my cheekbones, and on my eyelids. So not only Susan, folks, I know people who use it and who love it. And with its instant effects, you will see results in the first 12 hours guaranteed or your money back. During the GenuCell Mother's Day sale, you can save up to 50% off all GenuCell products at GenuCell.com now. Go to GenuCell.com slash Bulwark, GenuCell.com slash Bulwark. Order today, and Shamanex will include a surprise luxury gift absolutely free. GenuCell.com slash Bulwark, GenuCell.com slash Bulwark. That's GenuCell.com slash Bulwark. Okay, we are back with Philip Bump from uh, the Washington Post. I want to get to uh, 2,000 Mules in a moment. And what I like about your work, Philip, is you really do connect uh, a lot of the dots. So I'm, I'm looking at some of the re recent columns you wrote. So we're talking about the way that extremism actually helps Republicans in the, the primary. And, and I think this relates as well, because you wrote uh, a couple of days ago, Trump's off-the-cuff abortion position moves closer to reality. And I remember this so well. I think it was here in Wisconsin that Donald Trump sat down with, uh, with Chris Matthews. 
And Matthews asked him whether or not, uh, in the case of abortion, you know, women should be you know, held criminally liable as well. And, and Trump, who clearly had not given five minutes thought to the <laughs> right, issue at right. that point, said, well, of course, w- women need to be held uh, accountable. And, you know, the, the rest of the pro-life movement pushed back and said, oh, that's terrible. And he backed off. But as you point out, once again, the most extreme position finds a way of sort of popping up like whack-a-mole um, on the right, playing out right now. Right. Yeah. I mean, this, the the best part, I mean, it's honestly one of my favorite Trump scenes because it was so mm-hmm. revelatory because it wasn't even just that he was like, yes, I think they should. You could see him think about it. Like, know. Right? Just, <laughs> like, you know, a candidate for president just sitting there being like, well, I think that, yeah. And it's just like, come on, man. Just be like, you know what? That's a good question. Let's come back to it. And what he's thinking is at that moment, he's thinking, what am I supposed to say? If exactly. I was really pro-life, if I, <laughs> right. I, I am right. playing a pro-life individual, right. what would a pro-life individual sound like? And, he, and because he really wasn't, Correct. he just, he sort of blurts that out. Right. And you, you, know, you could just hear all the actual pro-life people just going, like, oh, yes, because <laughs> he did it. Right. But it's fascinating. That was a conversation in a world where people presumed Roe was not going anywhere. That's no longer the world. We presume the Roe is going somewhere. The Roe is going to be overturned. And what we see in polling is that actually probably about half of Republicans uh, agree that maybe there should be some sort of criminal penalty for women who mm-hmm. uh, got an abortion, uh, you know, in places where it's illegal. Um, that is I mean, that there are obvious political repercussions to that. And that is, I think, something that uh, it will not take long should Roe be overturned for Democrats to sort of seize upon. Uh, But it's also something that, you know, may start working its way into policy. So far, what we've seen, uh, both trigger laws, trigger laws almost to a uh, trigger laws, of course, being ones that are uh, were already passed. So if Roe is overturned, they'll immediately go into place to ban abortion. Most of the laws in the states that have trigger laws actually explicitly exempt women from criminal punishment. They say very explicitly that this is not the case. Uh, But we have seen some legislation that's been introduced, which could potentially start seeing criminal punishment for women. And that changes the politics of it. And if we're talking about a situation in which Roe comes down to state level fights, you know, that is potentially something that could reshape what those fights actually look like. Well, and, and, and if people understand the sort of, you know, hold my beer march to the extremes in Republican politics, you can see how that would would happen because the litmus tests and the goalposts, to use all these cliches, you know, keep moving on all and one issue after another. You know, somebody, you know, comes out in favor of a of a ban on abortions after uh, 15 weeks and, uh, you know, their opponent says, well, no, that's a squishy position. It should only be six weeks. And somebody says, well, no, if you really believe that it's the, you know, that it's a human life from conception, then then six weeks is, is in fact, uh, you know, in, indefensible. And there's an iron consistent logic that if, in fact, it is uh, the equivalent of murdering a human being, then why wouldn't you hold the mother account? I mean, th- this right. is part of the problem is there is a logical chain there. And and if you marry that to this, who is the purest, who is the most extreme in Republican uh, internal politics, you can see how this could happen. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And I mean, you really hit on the, the concern here, which is that we have been in this race to the polls you know, and the left has been moving to the polls too. You know, the whole debate about Elon Musk. You know, I don't, I don't want to both sides here, but I can just anticipate. Yeah. So the pushback we're going to get. The right was more extreme and has also moved further to the right over the course of the past eight years or so, uh, particularly in the Trump era. But there is this, especially as we see, you know, uh, more polarized, more nationalized elections, as we see more safe seats in the House, as we see this further alignment of Senate races and presidential races, as we see partisanship play such a bigger role, as we see 
primaries, you know, becoming more important in terms of determining who actually gets sent to Washington. All of these things contribute and overlap with the conservative media that continues to push people to the right. And so we see exactly to your point, these arguments over who can be further to the right on this issue. Uh, and, you know, again, I, I don't know how that might muddy what happens politically uh, with some of these fights over abortion that I seem as though they're inevitable. Okay, so let's circle back uh, to the big lie. Uh, we see the potency of the big lie in in the primaries last night, and the big lie now has its movie. And you've written about this extensively, and you've talked to uh, the producer. Two thousand mules, you write, offers the least convincing election fraud theory yet. So right. talk to me about this because this is a big thing on the right. Donald Trump right. opened up Mar-a-Lago to have a star-studded debut. Featuring all kinds of, you know, MAGA heroes like Kyle Rittenhouse, etc. So you've watched the movie. What, what do you mean when you say it's the least convincing election fraud theory yet? I mean, it's a movie. It must be true. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's the least convincing simply because I came into it, you know, I came into it skeptically. I'm not, you know, I'm not yeah, going to say right. that I came into it fresh faced and, you know, assuming that perhaps, you know, I, I know who Dinesh D'Souza is. I know his track record. Mm -hmm. I was I was skeptical coming into it. Even by that standard, I was surprised at how little evidence there was for the claims that were being made. So the, essentially, the thrust is, this is a work with this group called True the Vote, uh, which mm -hmm. is a conservative organization from Texas. True the Vote uh, says that they spoke with this whistleblower who says that he was paid $10 for each ballot he returned in Georgia. They then cobbled together this strategy of using cell phone uh, geolocation data, uh, data that your cell phone produces, uh, provides to apps and things along those lines that then is aggregated for marketers. Uh, that they used that data then to track people who went to multiple drop boxes. They then obtained uh, video from the drop boxes and they put together this broad theory that there were thousands of people working across the country to collect ballots and drop them off in drop boxes. And that made the difference in the presidential election. That's the argument. No part of that is demonstrated to be true in the movie. There is no <sighs> evidence shown for Oof. the geolocation data. There is no connection made between the geolocation data and the video snippets that are shown in the movie. In other words, there's no proof that the video snippets even reflect any of these so-called mules. There is, you know, they, they, the, the, the centerpiece of the movie, because obviously what D'Souza is doing here is he's filling the demand, right? The demand is for someone to prove something that shows that Donald Trump won. Dinesh D'Souza is a smart guy, smart enough to know that he can create a product that fills, that meets that demand and fills his pockets with money. He creates this movie. And so part of the movie shows, you know, here's how, if we assume these mules did what they're doing, here's how many votes this would have overturned. These are illegal votes and therefore Donald Trump would have won the election. That's the emotional heart of the movie. But this is a really key point that not a lot of people have hit on. It depends on assuming that these mules each deposited an average of five ballots each time they went to a drop box. Mm -hmm. And here's the question. How the hell could you know that, right? If you were using geolocation data, you have, there's no way you could know how many ballots they have, right? And in the video snippets, they show one or two people, you know, putting more than one ballot in. Most of the snippets they show of these quote unquote mules, they're only putting one ballot in. So where do you get this five from? And I pushed him on that. And he just said, well, you know, they just, they can look at the video and tell, but they don't have video from, he admitted elsewhere in the interview, they don't have video from most of these states and a lot of these drop boxes. There's literally no way you can know that and if you don't know how many ballots are being deposited, the whole thing goes out the window. But he doesn't care because it makes his argument and it makes him money. Well, as you point out, it's a religious text for true believers. But uh, right. OK, so the ballots that he's talking about, the ballot harvesting where you know, people go and they collect uh, other people's votes and they, and, they, and they put them in for them. Right. I mean, is that right. fair? OK. Are these bogus votes or are they real votes? 
Yeah, this is the other part of the, yeah. of the question. Right? This is so, kind of so, an important. This is an important aspect of this question, right. think, you know. Right. No, absolutely. You know, I mean, there, there's there's a, a couple of important pieces of context here. The first is he's looking at five states: Wisconsin, Michigan, Georgia, Arizona, and Pennsylvania. In three of those states, ballot harvesting is illegal. In two of them, it wasn't. Pennsylvania, you're allowed to collect people's ballots and submit them. Yeah. In Wisconsin, there was no law. Uh, and so one of the fascinating things is back in March, these folks from True the Vote sat down and they sat before a, 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 a committee in the uh, legislature for Wisconsin. They made this big case about all this ballot harvesting. And then one of the Democrats in the committee is like, well, of course, but that wasn't illegal in Wisconsin. They're like, well, yeah, no, it wasn't, but blah, blah, blah. Right? And she's like, well, OK, yeah. well, that's sort of your entire point. Uh, but you know, both True the Vote and Brad Raffensperger in Georgia, where ballot harvesting is illegal, both of them have made the case in that Wisconsin committee, in the case of True the Vote, and Brad Raffensperger in interviews, that just even if these are ballots collected from voters and submitted, that doesn't make them illegal ballots. They're perfectly right. valid ballots. And as such, even if you had these five mystery ballots where this number was pulled out of thin air, if they're, you know, they're, they're legal votes unless proven otherwise. And of course, you know, there's no evidence that they weren't. So these are legal ballots anyway, even if they were collected by these, you know, so-called harvesters. So, I mean, give me your piece. I mean, you mentioned this scene that's built around the video of a woman using a drop box. Um, and, and as you mentioned, you know, the, the film claims she, you know, she's sticking three or four ballots into the box and she's wearing, well, here it comes, latex gloves yeah. during the pandemic. And she takes them off after using the ballot box and it's 1 a.m. And we're supposed to believe this is really, really nefarious, that she would be wearing right. these gloves. What do you think? Right. So in this scene, they actually show multiple times in the movie. They show it. So he has this thing he does where he, he uh, goes over the evidence with these folks from True the Vote and this guy named Greg Phillips. And then he shows it to this panel of conservative commentators who, of course, are just stunned and now fully convinced that the election was stolen, which obviously they all believe beforehand anyway. Uh, but yeah, so this incident of this woman depositing this thing, she goes up to the drop box, puts in a ballot, takes off her gloves, throws them, throws them in a garbage can, and goes back to her car. And one of the things they all, they, they focus on intently is, well, she didn't even see that garbage can when she walked up, but she knew it was there to throw away her gloves as though, you know, you can't see things out of the corner of your <laughs> eye and or see things when you turn around. Um, but yeah, and so D'Souza, when I'm talking to him, he's like, well, one of the things that's been argued is, well, you know, maybe she's doing it for coronavirus. And it's like, well, obviously that's not true because you would still keep wearing your gloves and, you know, back to your car. And I'm just like, well, no, you wouldn't. Like the whole point of wearing gloves is that you, you wear the gloves to protect you when you're touching a common use object. Then you take those off so you don't contaminate your car or touch your face. And it's just like, but and it's it's sort of fascinating, both that and this other incident in which he tries to claim that someone taking a picture of a ballot being deposited necessarily means that they were you know, trying to do it to get paid, just shows a complete lack of understanding of what people who weren't in his bubble were thinking. Like, I don't think Dinesh D'Souza spent a lot of time worrying about coronavirus restrictions, right? I mean, he's very conservative and that, that, that tends to be the case. And so he probably never even considered why people might wear gloves to protect themselves against coronavirus and therefore found it very bizarre that you take the gloves off after touching the Dropbox. And it's just, it's easily explained if you're outside of that bubble. Well, I know you, you just mentioned this, the, uh, the the scene of the guy on the bike dropping off a ballot and he's you know, trying to take a picture of himself while he's at the Dropbox. And, and of course, D'Souza suggests he's trying to prove that, you know, he's done the trafficking so he can get paid. But right. as you point, kind of ignores the, the social media campaigns of people who are, you know, taking pictures of themselves. I voted. I did all of these things. Right. It's this intention to inflate it all. So you actually spoke for about an hour 
with D'Souza about all of this. Now, I see that he's right. tweeting this morning. He's noting, you know, all of these news organizations are doing fact checks, pointing out how many misrepresentations, falsehoods there are. And, and he's saying that he's never enjoyed himself so much. Mm-hmm. So w- when you talk to him, I mean, is he enjoying himself? Is he is he is he kind of proud of this? Is he feeling any sort of chagrin about the kinds of disdain that he's getting from people who are actually taking apart his work? Or I guess what I'm getting at is that the thing about Dinesh D'Souza, he understands that that he can feed this to the true believers. He can make lots of money. And that right now in the current environment, he is absolutely immune from any fact checking. He lives in a world where none of that affects him at all. Is that the sense you get from him? I think clearly D'Souza is enjoying this moment. I mean, he's getting exactly what he wanted, which is a lot of attention for his film. But I also think he actually believes he's on to something here, right? In having this conversation with him, he has a lot of faith in True the Votes data and True the Votes presentations of what's happened. It was very clear in a conversation he had not done a lot of due diligence in assessing the validity of what True the Vote was presenting to him. He had not talked to the whistleblower. He, I, there was no indication that he had actually seen the connection that True the Vote purports between their geo-tracking data and these visuals at the drop boxes, which is an absolutely essential part of the case. So, for example, the bike guy that you just mentioned, if that bike guy isn't shown by geolocation data to have been a mule who went to all these other drop boxes, then there's no point in showing him in the film anyway. I challenged him on that, and he couldn't say beyond taking the word of True the Vote you know, beyond assuming that the word of the truth of the vote was accurate, that that he was actually this bike guy was a mule. And this is really important because the guy who he's relying on for all this is this guy named Greg Phillips. And if you have ever heard of Greg Phillips before, it's because in November 2016, a couple of weeks after the 2016 election, Greg Phillips very publicly stated that he had proof that millions of people voted illegally in the 2016 election. Donald Trump seized on it. He amplified it, said, here we go. I, I was right all along. I won the popular vote. And Phillips presented not one shred of evidence to that to that point. And everyone forgot about it until he pops up. And it's, it's sort of honestly baffling to be true. The vote would put all their eggs in his basket, his having been proven to be false. And I also think it's point, worth pointing out. I mentioned this to Susan in our conversation. True the Vote was actually sued by a high-profile donor giving them millions of dollars because he did not see any result of his investment. He did not see them coming forward with any proof of fraud. And then voila, now they have, you know, they're the centerpiece of this big campaign around fraud. So they had a motive directly to please their funders to try and come up with some evidence that fraud occurred. And they're having the person who was saying that fraud occurred is a guy who was in the past made similar claims while presenting no evidence. And all of that, those are the people that Dinesh D'Souza is willing to say, you know what, I bet they're right and they're presenting this fairly. And I think those are all bad assumptions all the way down. Yeah, well, you know, Dinesh has made a, a series of uh, bad assumptions. By the way, this is just sort of a, a, of a digression here. Uh, you know, At The Bulwark, we published a review by uh, my colleague, Amanda Carpenter. And Dinesh D'Souza's response was to make fun of her because she had gone to a state school right. as opposed to a an Ivy League school like, like Dartmouth, which I thought was awfully interesting you know the a, a convicted felon mocking somebody for their resume but also this new populism this new anti-elitism making fun of somebody who went to ball state as opposed right. to harvard yale or dartmouth it's sort of, i mean dinesh is what can i say he's a piece of work but so why why <laughs> well, can, I, can i just make it yeah, 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 because look here's the thing there's also a sexist aspect to it too, too. guess where i went to college I went to the Ohio State University in Columbus, oh, Ohio. Mm-hmm. You know what? He, he didn't mention that in any of the conversations that we had. So, oh, you know, really? I feel huh. like there's something else to play here. 
Uh, there probably is, of course. Yes. And so he hasn't lashed out at you for what you have written because you went to a state school. Correct. Because so. I'm some ignorant, you know, hick from Ohio. That's right. Yeah. It just seems, it seems like a bizarre flex on, on his part. So why did he talk right. to you, do you think? I'm, just, I'm always interested in, 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 in guys who take the phone calls from guys that they know are not going to, you know, I mean, he's he's comfortable in the in the Newsmax OAN bubble. He's um, right. apparently been exiled by F Fox News. He's very mad at Fox News for <laughs> he is. not 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 hyping it. But he but he talked to you. Yeah, I think there's a couple of reasons. Uh, I think the first is that he did the very standard, you know, smart guy on the right tactic of as soon as I started criticizing 2000 Mules, he very publicly was like, OK, then why don't we debate it? Um, and so, you know, I am wise enough to know that, you know, debates do not <laughs> offer an opportunity for actual, you know, real conversation because you can't back up what you're saying with facts and so on and so forth. But I said, you know what? Yeah, absolutely. Let's have a conversation. And so I think to some extent he'd paint himself into a bit of a corner, especially because I kept egging him on and being like, hey, come on, man. I thought we were doing this because he sort of went radio silent after, after I said, yeah, let's do it. Uh, so we had this conversation. I think that's part of it. But I think he also recognizes that, you know, having more attention in the Washington Post and getting the, you know, pit the Washington Post as his opponent benefits him both broadly and specifically in trying to sell the movie. Uh, you know, I'm not, you know, my goal here is not to have more people watch 2000 Mules since it's obviously a bit of wildly misleading propaganda, but I do think it's worth establishing for the record the ways in which he very clearly is not able to defend the claims that he, he presents in the film. Yeah. So let's talk about another one of the, uh, Interesting developments over the last 24 hours. The uh, the defeat of Madison Cawthorn in the primary. Now, I, I have to confess, I am like I've written a lot about Madison Cawthorn. We've uh, we have dunked on him uh, frequently, you know, held him up as an example of, uh, of of being deplorable. I have to admit that having read that uh, that Politico profile over the weekend, you really got the sense of how badly damaged and broken and just totally fucked up this guy is. So give me your take on the fact that Republican primary voters uh, decided to move on from Madison Cawthorn, whether we should read anything into it. I mean, there's I can't remember a time in which the party has turned so viciously against one of their members. Yeah. Right. You know, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that. People like to point to the cocaine orgies thing, which I don't think <laughs> a lot of people have sort of, you know, speculated that with excitement that perhaps that's because he was telling the truth. I think it's more just because it showed that he was totally detached from any commitment to the party anyway. So they, they wanted to get someone in line, you know, but he didn't want the job. Like he liked the idea of campaigning. He liked the idea of being a Congress member. Uh, but when he came to Washington, he immediately said, well, I'm not going to focus on policy. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to staff up my comms team instead. He wanted to sort of be a personality and he became a personality, but he didn't want to be a member of Congress. And, you know, I, I, I don't know if he could have saved a seat if he'd really fought for it, but I'm not sure he wanted to fight for it. But yeah, I mean, look, you know, when you're 26, you feel like an adult and you and I are old enough to know that you're sort of not. And, right. um, you know, I don't mean to disparage anyone saying that, but like he he has some growing to do. And I think he got in way over his head I think so, um, and sort of stepped onto the national stage and wilted under the lights and was already coming to that position. He was trying to prove something to himself. And look, I don't want to pay, play armchair psychologist too, <laughs> too much, but, you know, it certainly does seem as though, you know, he was facing a very challenging position in his life. This gave him some some validity, uh, but then he didn't really consider what the downside of that would be. And and now he sees. And, you know, I, I, I sincerely wish him the best. I think that, you know, he has a lot of challenges he needs to overcome, but I think Congress probably was not the right place for him. 
No, I in many ways it just uh, it, it magnified all of the the problems that he that he had. But even with all of that, even calling Vladimir Zelensky a a, a, a thug and uh, the you know his his conduct and the videos, etc., he still got thirty one point nine percent of the vote. Uh, he came very very close to to winning. And, you know, one of the big questions is, you know, even with Donald Trump's support, even in this post-shame MAGA world, you know, you know, is there a bridge too far? And, you know, you know, you could point at Madison Cawthorn as being an example, although the Republican Party, it, it does feel like the Republican Party really coalesced to get rid of him, but only did so barely. And I'm wondering, you know, the Eric Reitens of the world sitting in Missouri mm-hmm. going, OK, you know. That's not that bad. You know, I, I tied up a woman and took pictures of her and, you know, was forced to resign in disgrace as governor. But, you know, um, new times, new rules. You know, I, I guess I'm, I'm saying that I don't think people should have any sort of irrational exuberance that, OK, now here's a sign the Republican Party is healing itself because they've thrown out Madison Cawthorn. Yeah, I think to, to reinforce that point, the reason that one might presume he lost, and obviously we're making presumptions here, one might presume he lost because these videos came out because he you know, was driving without a license because he's bringing guns to airports because he's making all sorts of dumb 26 year old decisions not because he you know was armed on the floor of the house and because he you know voted to overturn the election and because he was a stalwart supporter of trump and because he you know badmouthed uh, Zelensky, right like i don't think those things affected his election outcome i think it was the videotapes and the, you know the the constant fodder uh, for stories about his behavior. And so if you're talking about, if if you are trying to extend Cawthorn's loss into some broader lesson about, you know, maybe Republicans have had enough of Trumpian style politics, I think you're wildly misreading the, the rationale behind his uh, defeat. Well, I think, you know, since it's been somewhat dark, we, we, we should point out some relatively maybe, you know, we're grasping here up, you know, positive developments. Uh, the governor of Idaho, Brad Little, beat the the insane Trump endorsed lieutenant governor, Janice McEachin. Is that how you pronounced it? Uh, yeah. And apparently, apparently in Idaho, the Republicans also nominated a perfectly sane individual over two stop to steal uh, lunatics in, in another race. So the secretary of know, state, yeah. Yeah, Secretary of State. So in some ways, it is a mixed uh, bag. But I, I think anybody looking at these results and thinking that that Republican Party is prepared to move on with MAGA would be uh, engaging in some rather aggressive wish casting. Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think one thing we also need to be careful of, and, you know, the Idaho races were interesting. I think that the Secretary of State's race probably had some split the vote sort of style. I mean, you know, the guy who won that race did so fairly narrowly. I mean, this is still early. And I think McEachin was just sort of she uh, she's the person who people may remember as soon as the governor left town for a uh, conference or something. She was acting governor and passed <laughs> all these crazy executive orders. And the governor came back and was like, what the hell are you doing? And they had yes. to undo them. And so, you know, so she was also sort of <laughs> acting against the guy who they'd elected in the first place, which I think probably didn't really help her. But all that said, I think we're going to see Trump crowing about how well he's doing because that's what he does. And, you know, he, he bases his power on these sorts of endorsements. And I really think it's important to remember as we see that happen that not only is Trump, of course, simply trying to validate his own power, not really trying to make real statements about what's happening in American politics, but, you know, things like if he tries to take credit for Mastriano, if he tries to, like, downplay, you know, what happened with Cawthorn, he endorsed Mastriano, what, last Friday, was it? After it was obvious he was already going to win, and because he was worried that Barnett was going to beat 
uh, Oz, and so he wanted to split the difference with Pennsylvania. Like, I think one thing to remember is that for a very mixed picture of what happened in Republican politics, it is not the case that Donald Trump is uniformly a winner, which is, of course, the case that Donald Trump's going to try and present. Philip Bum, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Philip is the national correspondent for The Washington Post, also writes the Post newsletter, How to Read This Chart. Uh, thanks so much for your time this morning. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast, and we'll be back tomorrow to do this all over again.